Welcome to Brandon Avat. Today we have Nathan Novus, who's the author of Thinking Critically About Abortion. And um, it's a wonderfully accessible book um, that provides arguments on both sides of the debate, uh, which is freely available in the description below. Um, Nathan, would you like to start with a thought experiment? The main issue about, per, uh, about abortion is whether fetuses are persons or not. So there's a big debate about whether fetuses are persons. Um, why is there such a debate? Well, because people think like, look, if something's a person, then it has the right to life. And if it has the right to life, then it's pretty much wrong to kill in most circumstances. And so that would mean if fetuses are persons, well, that would mean that abortion is pretty much wrong. Almost 50 years ago, uh, the philosopher Judith Thompson, who recently passed away, um, had a uh, thought experiment designed to challenge that simple common argument. Imagine you wake up one day in the hospital, plugged in to a famous violinist who is using your kidneys to filter um, his or her blood. Um, now, you didn't, you didn't agree to this. You didn't know that uh, this was going to happen, and you're surprised about what's going on. And you're told, look, here's the situation. Um, the violinists need to use your body um, to filter his blood. Um, we've been trying to find somebody to, who can help, somebody whose blood type and biology will fit with his and we found in the hospital records that you are the one match. So last night, uh, we, the Society of Music Lovers, we, we kidnapped you and plugged you into the violinist. And um, you know we're really sorry about this, but look, um, it's only nine months, and if you, unplug, if you unplug from him, you'll die. There's a couple questions that are good to ask people. Um, what would you do if you wound up in such a bizarre circumstance? Um, and second, what should you do? Um, those are, of course, different questions. Uh, what would you do? What should you do? Um, and then a related question would be, um, if you unplug from the violinist, have you violated the violinist's right to life? So those are the questions. And uh, Thompson's answers um, help us sort of reevaluate that simple argument about abortion. So if I understand correctly, Thompson is saying that... Um... You do. You can unplug if if you that person who wakes up next to the violinist, right? You're allowed to. It's okay. Uh, you're not forced to to have the violinist uh, live through your kidneys for the next uh, nine months. And so her conclusion is that just because someone is a person, the violinist is a person, and perhaps a, a really impressive person, a very accomplished person. Um, does not necessarily mean that they have a right to your body. Most people you ask, like, what would you do? They would say, I would unplug. I don't want to be plugged into this guy uh, for nine months. I didn't agree to this. I didn't want any of this happen. So I would unplug and it would be permissible for me to unplug. I wouldn't be doing anything wrong in unplugging. Um, I wouldn't be violating his rights. That means that the right to life is not a right to everything you need to live, um, which I think is part of the sort of mistaken assumptions behind that initial simple argument against abortion. Um, so, um, you know, the right to life does not include a right to other people's bodies, even if you need them to live. So what's so clever about the case is that you can avoid questions around um, the personhood of a fetus. So she's trying to make an analogous argument for why even if it is the case that a fetus is a person or a full human being, um, that nonetheless, there is some reason to think that you don't owe it an obligation. But there might right. be a couple of problems um, with the way that the, the case is set up. Mm -hmm. So imagine this, imagine that I uh, go out on the town with the violinist, and before we go out on the town, he says, listen, just so you know, um, I've got a serious kidney problem. Um, and if we drink too many tequilas together, I might need to be hooked up to you for a mm -hmm. period of nine months. Um, and just so you know, you are the only person who can do this for me. And I say, yeah, okay, cool. No problem, man. And we go out and we're having fun. And I just think, ah, but tequila is so good. It's so much fun. I really want to do this with this violinist, you know? And so I acknowledge the risk that there will be this problem that the violinist has to be hooked up to me for this period of time. And I say, but yeah, I mean, maybe if he just drinks enough water, it'll be okay. And, you know, he shoots up the tequilas and at the end of it, he's got the renal failure and he has to get picked up to me. 
in that situation, we start to say, well, hold on a second. You've got a bit of culpability in this. You made some choices. You knew there was a risk. You weren't just kidnapped in, in the middle of the night. And mm -hmm. so I think that the way that Thompson sets up the case might only apply to certain kinds of cases where someone falls pregnant. So it seems to my mind, most analogous to a rape case where someone mm -hmm. uh, no role whatsoever in the choice. But I'll right. my change in the situation where we said, but hold on, you knew the risks. Uh, you knew that there could be a person who would, um, you know, would, would require uh, your you know, access to your resources to survive, but you took this sort of risky behavior anyway. And maybe there our sympathies change a bit. Did this person say, yeah, I agree that I will, uh, you know, support you with my body for nine months if, if needed? Is, is that... Well, we can imagine two versions of it. So the one is an explicit agreement where, mm -hmm. in other words, the violinist approaches me and says, look, if I go out with you and we have some tequilas, I'm going to need to use you for nine months. And you say, I agree, no problem. That mm -hmm. case, I think we're going to say Valenti Maxim kicks in, you know, the fact that it's very onerous to have this violinist on you, you if you rationally consented to that, you are doing mm -hmm. something severely wrong if you plug, if you renege on the agreement, you are killing this person despite your agreement. So the Valenti Maxim is this idea that you cannot be harmed by something that you consent to. So uh, you can't say I've dealt a, an unfair hand by this harm that has occurred because I knew in advance and I agreed to it. So that's the one case. Okay. And you might think an analogy of that would be, let's say someone who um, is a volunteer to be a surrogate mother um, and, you know, accepts a zygote. Um, and then during the course um, of the pregnancy says, I know I agreed to this, but I'm out. I don't feel like doing this anymore. I know I signed on the dotted line, but actually being pregnant kind of sucks and I'm not up for it anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So that might be the analogy there. The other one is the risky case. In other words, where I, I knew that this was a possibility. Um, I resigned myself to the fact I didn't take any mitigating risks. In other words, like I wasn't on birth control. I, you know, um, I, I knew that this was a possibility of my conduct, but I did it anyway. Um, and those things seem to play a role in whether we think we have obligations to the violinist. If you, you know, made an agreement uh, with your partying violinist that, that you'll be there uh, to serve him if, if, if need be, um, I mean, I think that definitely counts for something in that situation. How is that actually similar to, um, uh, to pregnancy or sex that might lead to pregnancy? You're certainly not making some sort of agreement with a non-existent person, non-existent potential person, um, to, to do anything. So, uh, you know, if somebody were to say that just as if you were to agree with the violinist to help him, if he needs it after partying with him, um, you know, you have agreed to, uh, uh, gestate anybody who happens to come about. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a very sort of different sort of agreement in, in each case. And indeed, it's sort of really hard to see how there's really any kind of, or could be any kind of agreement there. I mean, of course, you could, you could sort of promise to do it or something like that, or it's some kind of, kind of agreement with yourself. But uh, it's hard to see how you could have an agreement, a contract with, with a non-existent potential person. Um, about the second one, about the risk... You know it's risky. You know this might happen. Um, you know the violence might need your help. Um, it is true that Thompson, as she presented it, was basically, all right, let's assume for the sake of argument that, that fetuses are persons with the right to life and see where it goes. But at, at the end, she says something like, you know, all along we've just been assuming that fetuses are persons from the moment of conception or something like that. And that's not true anyway. So nothing we have said applies to the actual world. She assumes that for her discussion, but I, I think I'm inclined to think that at least when we take this back to the real world, um, we shouldn't keep sticking with the assumption that uh, zygotes and, and embryos and early fetuses are persons, um, in part because that makes a difference to how we should think about the case that you just mentioned. Your thought or your charge or whatever um, basically assumes that um, early fetuses are persons and that 
we are obligated or women would be obligated to, um, you know, carry them to term. Yeah. So I think if we want to test out this, this intuition about, do we think that an early fetus or a zygote is the equivalent of, let's say a newborn baby, um, mm -hmm. use another thought experiment. So for example, imagine that um, there is a doctor who's performing in vitros and he's got mm -hmm. a Petri dish with one zygote um, in his hand. And on the other mm -hmm. hand, he has a newborn baby. And as he's sort of walking down the hospital corridors, he slips. Um, mm -hmm. And you could say, which one, you know, you, you're okay with falling on the floor uh, to its mm -hmm. death. I would think that most people aren't going to say, well, it's a coin toss. Um, they're going to say, well, I'd prefer it if the, the zygote dish falls on the floor instead of the newborn baby. And then mm -hmm. we might test the case and say, okay, how many zygotes could we put into that dish um, before you would say, okay, I'm happy for the baby to die. And it might be mm -hmm. quite a lot. It might be that there is no number even. It might be the idea that a newborn baby is just a different kind of being. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we can test those out. Um, mm -hmm. But also through our discussion, we're seeing that there is a, there's a limit on, on how far um, Thompson's case gets us, as you point out, because as soon as I start talking about, you know, reaching an agreement with this being, you want to say, but hold on, it's just analogous because the being isn't in existence. Mm -hmm. so in other words, the zygote, you'd say, is just different because it is not a person. Um, mm -hmm. But as soon as we make that move, then we have to start going into some of these other questions about, well, what is a person uh, and what obligations do we owe people uh, and does a zygote mm -hmm. count? What is called sort of the autonomy argument is in, in kind of popular discussion of these topics um, kind of presents sort of a simplistic version of Thompson's arguments, which is kind of like almost as if she's saying, you know, look, you've got a right to your body you can do almost anything you want with your body because you have a right to it. And nobody has a right to it. And that's really not quite what Thompson says. And um, so part of, part of the reason is like not all obligations are due to rights. Well, you know, suppose pregnancy was like super easy and super quick. Um, maybe you could think that even though fetuses don't have a right to anybody's body or nobody has a right to anybody else's body, maybe you'd be obligated to, uh, be good Samaritans to them. Suppose I'm listening to this argument and before listening to this discussion, I have a very firm view on abortion, right? Mm -hmm. Suppose for example, my view is, um, is against. So I think that it is absolutely wrong to mm -hmm. abort. Um, mm -hmm. I can imagine a few arguments that I might raise. Um, so one would rely on this notion of personhood um, which may, perhaps multiple of these arguments would, but um, a personhood argument would say, well, uh, fetuses are persons and it is wrong to kill persons. And so it is wrong to abort. Um, mm -hmm. so, so Thompson is providing a counter example to that argument. Um, mm -hmm. But suppose you don't really buy Thompson's example. Why exactly would you classify fetuses as persons or not as persons? What are the reasons for not classifying them as persons? A lot of people, or at least some people say something like this. Look, abortion is wrong because, you know, if a woman has sex, she knows there's a chance that she could become pregnant. And that just makes abortion wrong. Um, so that seems to ultimately lead to just like, well, look, if a woman gets pregnant, she's just obligated to remain pregnant. Abortion is wrong. So we're headed towards abortion is wrong basically because women are obligated to not have abortions, which is sort of just going in a circle. Um, so one thing that's added into this mix is somebody might say like, well, look, um, if a woman has sex, she might bring about somebody or something that is dependent on her. And if you create something that's dependent on you, well, you're obligated um, to support that, that being. Um, and that to me seems a little um, also potentially question begging insofar as it's like, well, you know, what if you did something that where you created like a plant that was dependent on you or just a random blob of cells that was dependent upon you? Um, would you be obligated to, uh, you know, continue 
uh, keep it, helping that plant? <laughs> or would it even be wrong to kill that plant or that blob of cells, um, even though you did something that created this thing that's now dependent upon you? And I mean, the answer to me seems to be no, you know, it's just a blob of cells. Um, you know, and here I really mean like just a blob of cells, like you've done something that results in this patch of skin cells that is now in existence. You know, just because you create something that's dependent upon you doesn't mean you have obligations toward that sort of thing. I think a response to that, at least in kind of popular thinking would be, well, but fetuses are different. And okay, they are different, but how are they different? Well, they're the kinds of things that you're obligated to help that if, if you bring them into existence. Your concern is that it's question begging, right? That, that someone is arguing that it's wrong to abort because fetuses are the kind of things that are wrong to abort. There might be a different answer. So when you <clears> ask the question, um, why, why is a fetus different from a clump of skin cells? Mm -hmm. The answer might be because um, this clump of cells either constitutes a person mm -hmm. or constitutes a potential person. In the book, we propose um, two activities to kind of try to figure out what persons are. One of the activities, the second one, is basically make a list of persons and make a list of non-persons and then kind of ask yourself, well, what do the persons have in common that makes them persons? What do the non-persons uh, have or lack that makes them non-persons? And the, the subtle wrinkle, though, to this, this activity is, all right, in making that list of persons, you have to include uh, beings that might not exist, but if they existed, we would call them persons because the concept of person fits. The list of non-persons really is really easy. Uh, hopefully, um, you know you got your rocks, you got your carrots, you got your uh, car tires, you got your, you know, coffee cups, blah blah blah. Um, it, you know th that that heart that's getting ready for transplant, not a person. Maybe go into a person, but not a person. Um, you know, and then on the list of persons, well, there's you know people like us, but then you have to think about various uh, science fiction characters that you know human beings interact with are friends with blah 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 uh the potential for um spiritual persons divine persons so on and so forth and um so you can make these lists and then sort of ask yourself what's the sort of common denominator um and i think it comes down to uh, kind of psychological features um you can also get to this from another way which would be thinking about all right i'm a person uh, you're a person, what would end our personhood? When would we cease to be persons? Well, th there's two routes you could go. Uh, something or nothing. <laughs> and uh, the, the some things include, uh, for most people, death. They, many people think if they die, they are, will no longer be a person here. And another answer would be, well, if I were to fall into a permanent coma, that would end my personhood. On the other hand, some might say, um, you know, some religious people might say, well, really, um, my personhood will never end. You know, I'll keep on going, um, I guess, eternally, um, you know, into the future in heaven or something like that. And um, so it seems like either, either of those options, I think, can, can take us to, well, personhood is like defined by psychological qualities. You know, so persons are conscious feeling beings with awareness, thoughts, emotions, stuff like that. So the way I often kind of simplify it is, well, persons are beings with personalities. One of the useful distinctions you draw is between personhood and being a human being. So mm -hmm. for example, we can imagine a great ape that has personhood without being mm -hmm. a human being. It can communicate, it has can communicate through sign language, can experience pain. Uh, might have some sort of desires for the future um, mm -hmm. as not a human being. So here seems to be the difficult case. If you want to say, well, look, a zygote doesn't have personhood. Uh, it doesn't have any of these sort of psychological features. Um, mm -hmm. What about a, a, a newborn baby? So a baby that pops out on the first day. It doesn't have any memories. It doesn't have any desires. Uh, maybe it's got some capacity to experience um, 
physical pain, but we might think mm -hmm. it doesn't have the capacity to suffer because it can't reflect on that pain. Is it a person? Uh, and if it's not a person, um, and we say, well, it's okay to kill non-persons, are, are, do you have to accept the view that um, infanticide um, follows from your restriction of which beings get rights? No, not at all. It does not follow at all because I set the bar pretty low. Um, there are some people who say, oh, to be a person, you know, you have to be self-conscious. You have to think about yourself. You have to, you know, do lots of really fancy things. And my uh, inclination, uh, I mean, in part because of the chimpanzee examples and other sort of animal examples, um, would be that, um, no, the, the bar um, is set fairly low by sort of, um, you know, basically being sort of kind of merely conscious and feeling um, in, a, in a kind of psychologically unified sort of way that, um, at least on my experience with uh, newborn babies, it seems to me that they meet it. Babies feel things, they perceive things, things sort of seem good to them, seem bad to them. They're not thinking about Descartes or anything, but most of us aren't. <laughs> okay, so if I take your low threshold, it seems that there might be two other things that follow. The one is that uh, if having personality um, affords you uh, at least a right not to be killed, that we might mm -hmm. extend to a series of animals. So you might think, for example, you can't kill pigs and um, lambs and, and calves. They will have personality and ability to experience mm -hmm. The other one might be that. Um, oh, and, and yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I, I think that my views about many things are, are about this sort of issue are pretty close to Tom Reagan's. Um, he's the author of The Case for Animal Rights, um, where he basically proposed that anything that's what he calls a subject of a life, um, which is basically kind of a conscious feeling being. Um, he proposes kind of a little bit more, but anything like that would sort of uh, kind of have a, have, have basic rights. Um, and actually this view is sort of updated or presented a different way more recently by Christine Korsgaard, uh, where she proposes that any being that like has a, a good for themselves, any being that there's a way for that being to be, um, would be um, an end in themselves. And so the deal with Kant is that Kant says, uh, well, Kant basically says our good is being rational beings. Uh, Korsgaard argues that, well, Kant's mistake was not recognizing that animals have goods and they have a different good, which isn't being a rational being, it's being what they are, which is sort of a, I don't know, a, a, a merely sentient being or sort of more than that, um, a being that at the very least super fancy thoughts aren't really essentially associated with being that sort of being. So then the next thing is we've, we've talked thus far about early fetuses. So zygotes, mm -hmm. things in early development. Is there a point in the development of the fetus where you want to say it is bad to do things to this uh, being. In other words, it can experience pain. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, you can sort of imagine the sonogram where we can say, well, that thing sort of has got a beating heart. If we poke it with a needle, it tries to avoid it. Uh, we might think it has a personality. People might want to name it, uh, you know, before it has sort of exited the womb. So at, at, is there some juncture where you think that being gets a right to life? That's my inclination. There could be some morally wrong abortions Later in pregnancy, um, uh, it, it does seem that uh, fetuses become conscious. They do develop the capacity for feeling pain. Um, fortunately, this is well past when most abortions occur. A, a quick review of the medical literature suggests that, well, at least later, fetus, later fetuses um, seemingly are conscious and can feel pain. And um, at the very least, a view like mine says like, well, that, that matters. So, um, you know, at that point or at that stage or later, later abortions would become um, a much more morally serious matter. Some people are, are sort of upset with a view like that. 
they want a view that says like, no, darn it, you know, any abortion for any reason in any circumstance would just have to be okay. It could never be wrong. And at least my reaction is like, well, why? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it seems like some later abortions could be wrong. You know, that doesn't mean that in these circumstances, there aren't sort of other considerations that would overall justify an abortion. So I think there's something very fishy going on here with your definition of personhood. And Mark will nod along because he's pro-animal rights. Um, but, okay, so so the, the problem I have is that your, your, your definition of personhood is overly inclusive. Now, right at the beginning, um, you said... Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let let's come up with an account of personhood by listing those things that we commonly apply the word person to, mm -hmm. and listing listing those things that we generally do not apply the word mm -hmm. person to, and mm -hmm. and you you gave a third list as well. But this is at the basis of your conception. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I take it as uncontroversial that most people would say not, not this is a pre philosophical intuition that animals are not persons. Now. Mm -hmm. My, my issue is not that you want to award, uh, award um, rights to animals. Um, mm -hmm. that, that, that's, that's okay. I mean, there, there might be independent reasons for awarding rights to animals. And mm -hmm. one of those reasons would be, for example, that animals can feel pain. Mm -hmm. But you might not want to say that animals are persons. Mm -hmm. It's strange to, that, that, that doesn't roll off the tongue very well, that animals are persons, but they would mm -hmm. satisfy your criterion. So I... I have a cat who's been very diligently watching me watch mm -hmm. you in this episode. And he's waiting for the moment when I give him a little bit of attention because he knows that the moment I do that, he can ask for food. And he's mm -hmm. waiting, he's waiting. And he, he knows that I'm talking about him right now. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a greater level of awareness and coherence in experience than mm -hmm. a newborn has. Mm -hmm. um, and then than a late-term a late -term fetus has. Mm -hmm. So surely that would meet your criteria for personhood. And yet it seems to me to be counterintuitive to call the cat a person. And I, I'd like to make two points. The one is, one is this counterintuitiveness of, of calling my cat a person. But mm -hmm. the second one is in some of the implications of that. So one of the implications is what Mark spelled out, this idea of certain rights. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think those are counterintuitive. I think you can have animal rights. Um, but here's a more counterintuitive notion. So suppose my cat gets quite sick, not sick enough that he's going to die, but sick enough that his quality of life is reduced mm -hmm. and he's in pain. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't think it's untoward. We might even think it's humane and the right thing to do to put my cat down. But suppose a human went through the same. Suppose a human was fairly sick, um, was in pain, quality of life is reduced, but mm -hmm. not terminal, not a case of cancer, just, just, just in pain. There would be something untoward, not necessarily in euthanasia, but in, in euthanasia without, without asking the person what they think. You know, mm -hmm. so so you just you just decide one day. I I think the quality of your life is not fantastic. I see you're depressed. Uh, I see you've got a backache, uh, mm -hmm. and and this backache's not going to go away. Uh, and I've made a decision on your behalf that I'm going to uh, put you down, um, mm -hmm. just like I might put my cat down. We right. would think that there's something very bizarre going on there, right? Uh, we would think there's something morally repugnant going on there. Um, sure. And why is that? Well, one answer why is because um, humans can sometimes be the kind of persons that animals can't be. And, and it, it, just, it just seems to me like your, your definition of personhood is overly inclusive and it generates all of these problems. There are human beings for whom, like, look, they, they can't communicate what they want or would want if they were able to communicate. Um, and so somebody else is going to have to decide what seems to be best for them, um, you know, and, and make the decision on their, on their behalf. Um, you know, which is kind of like what you're mentioning with, with, uh, your cat. If, if I made it seem like, um, at least I think that, look, everything is either a person or not a person. 
Um, I don't know about that. Um, it does seem to me like some things are sort of, you know, more person-like than not. You know, is your cat more like a person or more like a non-person? Um, you know, is your cat more like you or more like a rock? And, uh, you know, th this sort of more like relation or whatever is, is, is a vague one, but, you know, I think people understand what you mean. And well, my cat was really kind of more like me. Um, you know, so your cat is sort of person-like. Um, other people sort of pose like there's sort of, I don't know, degrees of personhood or levels or something like that. Maybe you, your cat, and a newborn baby, maybe they're all persons, but sort of different levels of persons or something like that, or different degrees or different kinds of persons or something like that. I, I don't know if you have children. I don't know what your experience with babies are, but a lot of people sort of say like, well, you know, at whatever a month, months, it, it seems like they're turning into more of like a real person. They're sort of more responsive in various ways. Um, you know, whereas before they were more kind of just, just kind of blobby, <laughs> cute and blobby, uh, something's happened and they seem more person-like. On your view, there's this vague notion of personhood. Um, so something could be a one level of a person or another level of a person or one degree of a person or person-like and to different degrees of person-likeness. That, that is very unsatisfying to me as a philosopher and as a human, especially in notions uh, when, we, when we start discussing notions like abortion. I want a yes or no, you know, in any given case, not necessarily for all abortions, but for any given case, um, is this a person or not? And so is it right or wrong to kill it? Um, and it sounds like an account like that is just not going to cut it, right? It's, it's, it's going to be very vague. Um, also, you know, this notion of uh, degrees or levels of personhood is not going to map onto um, the absoluteness of right or wrong. Um, and it doesn't seem to me like it's even going to map onto degrees of right or wrong. I'm going to propose an alternative, right? So here's the alternative is a very simple account with a very simple okay. answer, right? So a simple account is a Kantian account of persons. So a, a person is a rational being. Or if you want to be sort of a neo-Kantian, uh, a person is um, a being that is, has potential rationality. Um, and if something is a person, then it is wrong to treat it as, a, as merely as a means to an end. Um, and if it is not a person, then go ahead. Um, it solves the animal case problem. Why? Because we just say animals have no rights whatsoever, which I'm totally fine with, but they can still experience pleasure and pain. And so we might accord um, some rightness and wrongness if you're utilitarian um, according to right to, to pleasure and pain, but it, they have no rights. And then we look at fetuses and we say, well, at a certain point in time, we say that the fetus develops the potential for rationality. Why? Because from that certain point in its development, it could be removed from the womb and survive. Um, without um, womb-like apparatus to keep it alive. So after a certain point in time, it, it is now a viable fetus. And so if you abort it at that point in time and kill it, then you are doing something wrong because it has potential rationality on this neo-Kantian view. Um, but before that, it doesn't have potential rationality because if you were to remove it from the womb, it's not viable, it won't develop into a rational being. Um, and so very clear cut, very clear cut answer, very clear cut account with a very simple solution. Um, and it gets rid of the animal problem, the animal um, count examples, which are difficult for your account. My issue is not that you're saying that animals have rights. My issue is that you're saying that animals are persons. Why? Oh. Um, yeah. Why are you saying that? Well, because you're saying that the, the, the sufficient condition for personhood is a mm -hmm. minimal um, coherence in, in one's experience, which animals clearly have. Um, mm -hmm. Once you start saying that animals are persons, you run into all sorts of problems. Um, so then you, you stepped back from that and said, well, animals are not persons exactly. They're person-like. They're more mm -hmm. person-like than they're rock-like. And that's where I start to say, okay, this, this sounds very vague to me, very fluffy. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Kant has a much better account of what a person is, and mm-hmm. it results in abortions being wrong after a certain point during the pregnancy and fine before that, um, which is exactly mm-hmm. the result that that's the conclusion that you come to. That's the conclusion you want. So it just seems to me like the Kantian um, notion of persons uh, works works perfectly well uh, in 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 the abortion case and avoids this this cont- this counterintuitive um, implication that you have that animals are persons. You know, it does seem plausible to me that if you are, if something is a rational being, then it would be a person. Uh, I have doubts about your move to potential um, for a number of reasons. One would be that, all right, you're sort of proposing that uh, being a rational being uh, kind of gives you rights. And so if you're a potentially rational being, you have those same rights. But of course, in general, potentially being something does not seem to give you the properties that come with being that sort of thing. So, um, you know, standard example, you know, if, if you're a lawyer, you've got the right to file a lawsuit or whatever. Random person shows up at court, they might say, sorry, you don't have the proper credential, credentials, you can't uh, file. Um, if this person says like, well, but I'm a potential lawyer, um, you know, and lawyers have the right to file lawsuits. Uh, well, sorry, <laughs> being a potential lawyer doesn't give you the right to do what actual lawyers uh, get to do. You were saying like, at some point in pregnancy, a fetus would gain this potential. It sounded like you were thinking that potential would come about later in pregnancy, but really, wouldn't it be there like from the very beginning? Embryos, early fetuses have the potential for being rational beings. Actually, that they're the kind of beings that are rational beings. So um, that seems to be their more preferred um, language, not not potential, but but um, you know they're like their essence is of a rational being. Upon closer examination, which you initially said that would you know make later abortions problematic, earlier abortions not problematic, uh, I think people might think, well, your view uh, results in most abortions being morally problematic, if not outright wrong. If what you're checking for is actual rationality, um, then I think you know you you can't really protect the newborn because it's not rational. You might might be allowed to have infanticide after two years, and if what you care about is potential, then I think you go all the way back down to the zygote. So it doesn't get to the same outcome as you. The other concern that Jason has, and he tends to have this kind of concern generally, is he doesn't like vague categories. Um, now I think that we wind up with vague categories all the time. So the classic um, sort of sorieties paradox is I have one grain of sand, and then I keep adding grains of sand to it, at some point it becomes a heap of sand. But you can't tell me when it becomes a heap. And I think that there's something to be said for this with regards to uh, to personhood. So for example, mm-hmm. we, I can't tell you the exact day that my child becomes a person, he merges towards it. Similarly, mm-hmm. we might think at the tail end of your life, that if you have something like dementia, that before you reach a physical death, um, your personality is eroded, mm-hmm. you know, one sort of day at a time through the, you know, the loss of your memories and of your sort of ability to um, reflect on your own life. And you might cease to become a person, but I can't tell you exactly when. So mm-hmm. I'm quite fond of your account of thinking about personality as, as emerging or, or degrading. Let's assume for the sake of argument that these sort of uh, non-person um, fetuses um, don't have rights. I want to give you some cases where I think it might nonetheless be wrong to uh, terminate their physical existence. So here's the first case. Your wife is pregnant. Um, and let's say at a point in time, while it's still an early fetus and I slip something into a drink, which then causes a miscarriage. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have I, have I, what have I done wrong? If you think mm-hmm. I haven't wronged the fetus because it doesn't have any rights, then why have I wronged your wife? The second case is imagine someone that deliberately gets pregnant, um, 
to uh, then perform miscarriages to sell the, the product uh, online. So that's it. She says, mm-hmm. well, all these customers uh, who really like uh, eating uh, my miscarriages and I, I make a living out of this. And so what I do is, you know, or, or producing into artworks uh, or whatever it is that she wants to do with it. You know, so she says, I deliberately get pregnant every month. And uh, just before the point of it reaching personhood, I then, you know, take the abortive um, procedure and, you know, I, I then sell this thing on the open market. Um in both cases, I think our intuitions are that something bad has occurred or something wrong has happened. Um, mm-hmm. I want to know how you would sort of make sense of that. Where uh, somebody is slipping something in the woman's drink to cause a miscarriage. Part of the story uh, is that she wants to be pregnant. She wants to have a baby. You know, she's going to have at least that baby only if that fetus continues to exist. Um, so at the very least that fetus has a sort of instrument is it instrumentally valuable towards, um, a major, major kind of life goal and plan for her and other people who care for her, you know, what the person does there could be, or would be, would be wrong, um, for that reason. Um, I guess what's important to notice is, uh, explaining the wrongness there um well you you don't really have to appeal to like a wronged fetus or really even i mean there's kind of like a wronged future person but i think the more natural explanation is you know these people the 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 people are missing out on their profound hopes and dreams for the future with uh this new person about the second one the person who's, um, you know, deliberately getting pregnant so that she can have miscarriages and sell them uh, to people who who want to eat them or whatever. That would be kind of harder to explain ultimately on a view like mine. I don't know. Maybe there's t- a type of sort of cal- callousness or vice involved. Um, I don't know. I- I'm not sure what to say about that. I mean, it might be another sort of case where, you know, it's just sort of very unfamiliar and very strange. And we have a hard time thinking straight about it because sort of our thoughts about it are cloudy. The, the problem um, the problem with Mark's yeah. case is that it's not that unusual. I mean, of course, it is unusual oh, really? for, for people to have abortions for fun. But mm-hmm. I can imagine people having children for the wrong reason mm-hmm. um, and then deciding it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And... I, I'm not saying that happens usually, but I'm saying that can't be an impossible case. Um, I'm sure that mm-hmm. happens more than very, very rarely. Um, mm-hmm. And and those are going to, su- I mean, Mark's case is a very vivid uh, example of that, um, mm-hmm. a very visceral example of that, but seems to, to come to, to boil down to the same problem is that someone decides I'm going to have a child and then they regret it and they have an abortion. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, that seems like there is something wrong that is, that can't be cashed out, um, purely, purely in terms of the person's feelings and thoughts. It has something to mm-hmm. do with someone being wronged, even though that someone is pre, pre, uh, the point where you would consider them a person. If we could create babies that were born without heads, we could create these babies and use them for organs. And um, I, I think that seems sort of similar in certain ways to this case. And then the reaction, you know, you know, the argument is that, and that would be terrible, that would be horrible. <laughs> um, and so a, a view such as mine must be wrong. And at least my reaction to that, um, which maybe I should transfer to Mark's case, is that I think what you're picturing with these like headless babies is, is something like sinister and nefarious and it wouldn't really have to be like that. Um, so, you know, maybe you're, you're, you know, you're, I think your judgments are kind of cloud or many people's judgments are kind of clouded by miss, uh, I don't know, misimagining the situation. I feel like I'm going through some sort of stages right now of processing this <laughs> sort of initial shock and then 
you know, mulling through it and like, well, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be that crazy or bad or whatever. Um, so, uh, I don't know. So here's, here's a, here's a very simple explanation for why it's fine to have, uh, uh, headless babies, um, mm-hmm. but not fine to do what, what Mark is suggesting. Mm-hmm. And that is that the headless babies have no potential for rationality, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the, the, the one day pre viable fetus does. And mm-hmm. so we think there's something very wrong with um, aborting that so you can eat it and share it with your friends, um, mm-hmm. but, but not an equally wrong thing to having babies that are headless. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to respond to, to this issue of vagueness. So Mark is right, I don't like vague categories. So when we want to know whether it's right or wrong to do something, um, uh-huh. then, then vagueness is a problem. But it's not a problem when you're talking about heaps versus piles um, uh-huh. or you know how, how many stones do you need to make a heap? Well, it's vague and that's fine because it has no implications. But when we want to know whether your daughter's life has value, um, that's, you know, vagueness is not, not really helpful there. Here. Basically what I'm trying to say is that vagueness is fine when it's just a metaphysical issue, but when it has moral implications, that's when vagueness is not okay. We would much prefer an account that doesn't involve vagueness. And so we should accept at least for that reason, um, perhaps not on the balance of reasons, but at least for that reason, uh, that the fact that the Kantian account is not vague provides a, a, an advantage over your account. Yeah, I suppose vagueness is a problem. We prefer that if everybody, everybody be either tall or not tall. If, if we could define tall so that everybody's either tall or not tall, that would be preferable to it being that there's some people that were like, I don't know if they're tall. I don't know if they're not tall. In this case, though, it seems like vagueness sort of better fits the facts i'm not so sure um i think the, the problem with a vague account is that it's it hits up against all of mark's counter examples um and the non-vague account doesn't suffer from those counter examples it may suffer from others um but not those also think about the tall case the reason why it's a non-issue uh, whether there's vagueness around tallness is because tallness doesn't really our, our moral intuitions around things don't rest on tallness we don't think for example that we can kill people who aren't tall and allow mm-hmm. people who are tall to live and must mm-hmm. you know if that was the case if we had a society based around tallness giving you a right to life and personhood well then we would definitely want a non-vague account of tallness that's perhaps why my proposal isn't vague. <laughs> uh, since I think I'm proposing that if you meet some minimal threshold, uh, you're in the ball game, so to speak. So I think what's interesting about your account is you probably could identify within a short period of time a point at which it becomes wrong to abort a fetus. So if you say at the juncture where it can experience pain or uh, has what we call personality at that point, it becomes wrong. And, and you're going to take the view that it's at some point in that fetal development. Um, you know, maybe there's some debate about how many weeks in, but you know, you can point to a period of time. So as you say, you may have maybe vague cases, but you're going to pin yourself down to some particular point in time. Here's a, here's an interesting situation. So um, some of our viewers will have um, watched an episode we did with um, David Benatar. Um, on, mm-hmm. uh, on the meaning of life. And David Benatar is very famous for his views on antinatalism. So he takes the view mm-hmm. that it is better never to have been born. And one of the implications of this view uh, is what he calls the pro-death view. So the idea that is, if it's better never to have been born, there is some point in time when you pop into moral existence. So very much in line with the view that you've expressed that, you know, you start off, let's say, as, as a zygote, as a non-person, and at some point in time in the womb, you then pop into moral existence and, you know, it would now be wrong to, um, to abort you. Um, and there is a unis um, that's emerged. So his view is that before that happens, a mother has a moral obligation to have an abortion um, because it would be better for that being not to exist and that you have done something wrong by falling pregnant and giving birth to a child and you have done something wrong by not ending um, a pregnancy at a certain stage. We, we are like essentially conscious and feeling beings. So you wouldn't exist until later when that starts. So, you know, that, that wouldn't be you. So, um, you know, but of course, if as 
Benatar suggests, you know, if, if that, um, you know, embryo or fetus were killed, well, that would prevent the person from coming into existence, which would prevent them from, uh, you know, pre prevent something very bad. Yeah, so it's it's a counter to the kind of um, usual line, which is that life is worth living and that you are depriving a being of a good life. In other words, mm -hmm. you're taking potential into account. You're saying no potential does matter. It just, it is the case that, you know, uh, life is nasty British and short. It's going to be much better if you never had one. And therefore, there is this moral obligation to prevent the potential of that occurring. Um, and as you say, you know, there's, let's say this, a prior event, um, which is not a you, um, which will lead to a you coming into existence. And if you can stop the event from taking place, well, then you ought to do so. Does he say advocate for, I don't know, kind of like widespread vasectomies or anything like that? So his position is that the best, the best case for humanity itself is if um, we cease to exist. So mm -hmm. um, in other words, um, the best scenario would be if everybody stopped um, producing children, not for the sake of the earth or nature or anything, but for those children, because for them, it would be bad to exist. Um, so yeah, widespread sterilization um, would, would be something that he thinks would be good. He doesn't um, advocate for forcible sterilization. Um, so he thinks it would be better for people to make that choice themselves um, to either choose to become a sterile or just choose not to, not to procreate forcing people to do that might make this existence even a little bit worse. Yeah. It's an interesting tension in the view because um, partly you have all these successive generations that will have to bear the burden of existence. And you might think that the wrong of violating someone's bodily integrity by forcibly sterilizing them is minor in comparison. Um, when pressed on it, he's sort of said to me that, well, maybe I'm wrong. Um, and that uh, you should sort of abide by a first do no harm principle.